So, so far, so good. I'd like you all to look at this picture and uh, notice the detail of this picture. Would anybody like just to talk to their next door neighbor just for 10 seconds and just mention one or two details they notice about this picture? I'll give you 10 seconds to talk about this. You've had your 10 seconds. Would anybody like to suggest anything that they've noticed about this picture? Yes, it does make you wonder if he's going to make it, doesn't it? Anything else? Yes, he's hoping that he's still going to stay up. Anything else? He's got very thick glasses on. And you really wonder if he'd made the right decision in jumping in the first place. Well, that's roughly how I feel. And this is a picture we have in our living room, or in our dining room. And I've used this to, to summarize some of the things I try and do in my life as a pediatric oncologist, because I ask families to make this leap of faith sometimes, and so that was, this is what it means to me. But in thinking about the lecture tonight, I felt it also applied to this term, so far, so good. There's another reason why I chose the thing, uh, so far, so good, is that uh, one of my ex-teachers, Bob Wilcox, who I meet not infrequently until recently in the Queen's Medical Center corridors, whenever you said to him, how are you, Bob? He'd say, so far, so good. And I thought that was right. It also made me smile that he had a kind of fatalistic approach to walking down the Queen's Medical Centre corridor. You never knew what was going to happen. And then, of course, the third thing is, of course, I'm standing here as your president at the beginning of a year of perhaps tumultuous change, a challenge in the health service, and we've got to try and keep this society on the road. And so I feel a little bit that this is so far, so good. So that's really why I chose this lecture title. Now I came from, come from, a very strong family. My mother's in the audience, uh, uh, in her, she tells me she's over 70, and um, that's my mother, let's see, here, um, that's my father there, and I'm this person here. So I'm the youngest of my generation, and my brother, who used to look completely differently from me, is, is now looking rather similar to me now. And um, I thought it was very important when you talk about uh, lectures to where you come from. And this family picture was taken in Blackburn in Lancashire. And my grandfather here, my mother's father, I think this must have been his 80th birthday. And he's looking pretty self-confident and pleased that he was an engineer and um, was a, a very successful man. And this is my grandmother here, Alice Fish. And all my cousins standing round about. So I came from a family, there's notable things, that none of us have any hair. And this might be quite important in some of the lectures that comes on on I've been told by many of my friends that I'm rather competitive, and I'm not quite sure what they mean. But I suspect it's because I was always about two feet shorter than this guy, and I felt I should be bigger than him. And he thought it was rather funny that I couldn't do things faster, better, or quicker, and spent really rather enjoyed that aspect of our relationship until I was about 18, then things seemed to stabilize. I remember winning table tennis for the first time and had to go and lock myself in my bedroom for some time until the emotions settled. 
As I got older, um, I went, was very fortunate to go to a school where I had this view every morning uh, as I went to morning prayers. Would anybody like to guess which church that is? Or no, which church that is? Yes, it's Western Strabby. And this was a print I bought in Nottingham Soul House um, in 19, and when I first came back here in 1990. I found it rolled up on the floor in the Soul House, and it's one of a series of prints. And I think I paid 27 quid for it and in the auction, and this was the exact view I had every morning in my school morning, it was rather nice. And so here I was in early adolescence and later adolescence with the schools. Notice the hair, rather prominent, isn't it? Our headmaster at the time, John Carlton, um, <coughs> was a very visionary man. He'd worked at the school all his life, he'd been a boy there, he'd gone away to war, he'd come back, he'd been the headmaster for many years. and. Um, <coughs> Towards the end of his, uh, his last assembly at school, he read out a wonderful letter to us, because uh, at the time, hair length was quite an issue in the 60s. Our uh, families were always a bit worried that hair was somehow a sign of, of fading morality. Um, and he wrote out this lovely letter saying that, uh, from, say, we'll say, a, a previous schoolboy called Carruthers, said, Dear Carlton, I was shocked to walk through Dean Chard the other day, and I saw the boys from the school with hair down to their shoulders. Surely hair of this length must be dirty and is a sign of the deterioration of society today. Yours sincerely, to others, but... Something like that. And he read this out, and of course the whole school laughed. And then he said, I, wrote, I thought I'd write a reply to Carruthers. And he wrote a letter back. He said, Dear Carruthers, thank you very much for your letter where you comment that the young men of today wear their hair long as a fashion. You may remember in the 17th century that men did something similar. And as for your suggestion that long hair is dirty hair, does that mean that long legs must be dirty legs? He also said Carlton. And of course he got an enormous uh, arousing applause, and he walked out, and we, he died shortly afterwards. I think he had plastic cancer at the time, and he knew that was what was happening. So this was a great place to go to school. You learned to do lots of things. You learned to get to know your teachers very well. We had very inspirational teachers, good relationships. You had very interesting people to work with, who uh, to study with, uh, sporting things, and uh, academically, he um, was surrounded by exceptionally clever people, and I was always admiring of them. I was introduced um, by this teacher. Uh, his name's Ron French. Rather faded picture, so I couldn't find a better one. Um, to mountains. And I'm going to just show you these pictures, and I want you to make some sense of these numbers as we go through. Um, they all mean something, these numbers. And there's somebody in the audience at the back and the right there that knows more about them than uh, all of you. Uh, maybe doesn't know quite as much about them as I do, because I have my number's bigger than his number. But um, we'll discuss that later. I've left it as a question mark, because I couldn't be accurate about how big his number is. And so these numbers all mean something. But the clue is this man here. Would anybody like to suggest who that man is? Hugh and Rowe. Right. So we're already going. So we'll move on. We'll find out about that. So after leaving school, I um, <coughs> applied to medical school, um, and uh, Nottingham University Medical School at that time was a new institution. Um, it had only received uh, two years when I came here, so we were in the third year, and uh, each year only had about 48 students in it. So there were only 96 students in the whole year, and it was very visionary at that time because it had half of them were girls. So that meant that building a rugby team out of 96 students, half of whom were girls, meant you only had 48 people. And not every male likes playing rugby. So starting rugby off was quite difficult. And this was a great fun. And 
I think I probably learned more by working with the rugby team than I did with anything else, to be honest, because it's about managing people. And this was a picture that we had after our first ever win, and that was in 1972. The team had played for two and a half years without winning a match. And then uh, our year brought some extra rugby players in who seemed to know how to catch the ball and run with it. And so we actually won our first game. But it was against the doctors from the general hospital and the city hospital, many of whom were so unfit from the one and two rotor that, or one and one rotor that they were doing. And I remember that Mr. Filshi had to be asked to leave the pitch because he was playing at the position of hooker but wearing golf shoes. And it was considered, <laughs> and it was considered to be um, un unfair and unsafe for the opposition. Uh, this picture here is from 1973. We seem to get a bit, look a bit tidier, but the hair got very long, you see. It's very, very long hair. And um, there's Angus Wallace here. He used to play in the second row with me sometimes. Uh, he, uh, I didn't, did you know that Angus Wallace came from Birmingham? I know you all think he's Scottish, but actually he comes from Birmingham. And, um, and uh, so there's some interesting people here. Paul Wheater here sadly died, but he wrote one of the major textbooks in pathology which has used, won many, many prizes with Jim Lowe, and uh, he was a brilliant histopathologist before he came to medical school. And his third year on his project, he did a fantastic piece of work showing how the uh, schistosoma mansoni worm skin turned over every 20 minutes and therefore avoided immune attacks. So he's an extraordinarily capable player. He was quite a good rugby player as well. He played in the front row. And he used to often end up hitting the opposition fairly firmly early on, and then things would settle down thereafter. Uh, Bill Holmes uh, is talking to our lecture series later on in the year, so he was a great leader of our rugby team. And uh, Pete Horsfield here in his long hair days, you know, GP and Derby Road, and Nick Woods, who works in uh, general practice as well. Uh, um, so there are quite a number of people. Uh, Mark Karpinski there, a very good fullback. He's one of those fullback, good fullbacks are always very valuable in the rugby team because when you've let them through, they're the people who make the difference. They either catch the ball or they knock them over. But these three people are important uh, because one of them's me. Uh, we see the hair got a bit shorter then. The other one's Rob Henderson, who's sitting at the back there, and the third one there is Alistair Murphy. And that has some relationship to um, the numbers in the mountains. This is um, Alistair Murphy before he grew a beard. That's Alistair Murphy after he grew a beard. So hair was quite a big thing then in all of us. And then this is the 25th reunion of the rugby club. So people got pretty smart by this time. Uh, the women look absolutely fantastic. And, um, and that's one of the things I've noticed with the medical students over the years, is that the quality and the beauty of the women is much, much better now than it was when we were younger. They were much less provocatively dressed. But they're very provocatively dressed. Paul Eddington particularly noticed that in his role as president of the Nottingham Medical School Rugby Club. He used to talk to me about it in the taxi on the way there. He said, there's going to be some beautiful women there tonight, he'd say. And that was one of the reasons why he remained president for so long. They had to force him out because of his keenness on the young women. But there you are. So rugby played quite an important part. And this is a little bit of a timeline. And our rugby team now are very successful. So, of course, really, we weren't a rugby team. We were really a religious group. <coughs> and um, we went on pilgrimage to Ireland where we saw this sign and realized what we were doing, that we were really seeking enlightenment through religion, and God was our refuge and strength after Guinness, I think, was the refuge. But whilst we were learning to play rugby, we, I was also learning pediatrics, and I was very fortunate, and I'm 
Sorry, because Nick Russ is in the audience, and he should be up here with them, but I couldn't find his picture on my computer. But actually, sorry, these are people, um, David Harwer, Peter Barber, Tony Milner, Leela Kapila, were very, when I was a student doing pediatrics, were really inspirational people. I, they really made me think that being a pediatrician would be interesting. And these are the, some of the people who shared my view, because these are students who are now pediatricians are working in pediatric medicine in one shape or another still here in Nottingham. Helen Benning, uh, Nigel Broderick, Lizzie Didcock, Stephanie Smith, and Dylan Mason. And so we, many of us, have stayed on because of the inspirational nature of these teachers and who made our lives so interesting. And you see that um, the issue of hair was summarized by Bill Holmes, who did the quotes for our yearbook, who uh, with this picture said, a hair in the head is worth two in the brush. And he obviously noticed something that I didn't notice at the time, is that my hair was receding. I was in denial. Um, but uh, my mother told me, you don't have to worry about it if your hair goes. You get look older at the beginning, but you stay the same age for much longer later. So I don't know. I suppose I'm benefiting from that. So it's a great honor to be <coughs> invited to be president of the Medico-Chirurgical Society because the Medico-Chirurgical Society has a long history. It's 181st birthday this year, according to the records. And this book is an extraordinary book summarizing that history about the lives of the presidents of this society that have kept this postgraduate education society and book society and social society going for doctors in Nottingham for all these years. And these pictures, it's the picture of the, I think the theatres at the General Hospital, and this is Jack Hardcastle, who is his uh, houseman, uh, operating in the 1970s. Um, I decided to look at uh, some of the presidents uh, who I'd known as a student, and uh, it showed you how you know, the fact is all of these people were very important for us as students, and for me personally, I remember these people. Uh, David Cochran was famous to Jill, uh, my wife, and myself, because he's the man who told me the joke about the crofter in the Highlands of Scotland. And um, two of our babies were delivered by Paul Eddington over there, who insisted after I told Jill Jill had a cesarean awake. And he, I told this joke um, during the first cesarean. And uh, when we came to have the second cesarean, Paul was operating. He said, could you just tell my registrar that joke about the crofter in the Highlands of Scotland again? And my wife, who was paralyzed from the waist downwards and therefore completely incapable of stopping me, had to put up with yet this joke yet again. So J.B. Cochran told that joke at the first uh, medical society meeting at uh, dinner. Uh, and he was a very entertaining man. And you could always tell when he was around that these Mercedes-Benz would be parked in a yellow line in the middle of town. And because he delivered all the meter maids of their babies, they never gave him a ticket. I remember uh, sitting on a bus one day and two women were talking about having, one of them had just been C.J.B. Cochrane about uh, her post-operatively after she'd had it all taken away. And she said, I said to him, and what about sex? And he said, woman said, that's the best offer I've had all day. <laughs> James McPhee, um, sorry, was, uh, was um, the president of the medical, of the medico Chirurgical Society when I was president of the Medical Society. And I remember being invited by him to join uh, an evening of entertainment, a Medico-Chirurgical Society ball. It was probably the most extraordinary social event I'd ever been to in my life to that date, because there were about 600 doctors who all seemed to have drunk an enormous amount by the time we came to sit at the top table. And there was a very fluid evening went on from there on. Alan Murphy was a fantastic general practitioner who taught us as students. 
I'll never forget him talking about his home delivery rates and his success rates and how they compared to hospital success rates. And they were really very good. Matt Gray, I was his houseman for six months as a urologist. James Neal was an inspirational ENT teacher, and he taught me where the tympanic membrane is, which is a pretty difficult thing as a medical student. You're never quite sure whether you've seen one. And as a pediatrician, that became very useful to me because the tympanic membrane is very important to look at. John Bittner in genitourinary medicine was a great teacher and, of course, was a great historian of this society. Peter Toggle, who's here tonight with Rosemary, was really the person who made me go into hemato-oncology, and uh, I was his houseman for six months, and he was our uh, clinical sub-dean to our year and uh, took great interest in us. Um, of course, nobody could be at medical school at that time without being impressed by Tony Mitchell, um, who was the foundation chair of medicine. Nick Galloway, I did um, a third-year honours project with Nick Galloway on pilocarpine infusions, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about infusions later. Tom Venables is here tonight. It was a GP who took, I did my GP attachment with. Patrick Bates, I was his houseman, and Ian Johnson was an SHO in obstetrics when I did obstetrics and was the person who got me into this mess of being president because he made me come and he asked me to do it twice. And so um, I really... I put him in colour because he's got big responsibilities. However, looking at those presents, the people I knew, uh, looking at that book, I'm a paediatrician, I specialise in looking after children. And uh, the children's services in Nottingham um, have been developed continuously over a long period of time. There's a poster up outside, which is slightly different from this one, it's a later version. But I just show you, ask you to look at this poster outside and, and we wanted to point out that there's been children's medicine here really dating right back to the early origins of the hospitals. 1782 the General Hospital was opened and built. 1798 Edward Jenner reported inoculation against smallpox. And this picture here, and if you go in the poster outside, this is John Attenborough. And John Attenborough was one of the founder members of the Nottingham Medico Chirurgical Society. And his claim to fame in Nottingham was he was the man who introduced smallpox inoculation into the childhood population. And uh, it's an interesting story because he um, obviously heard about Jenner's work who was using cowpox to immunize the children against smallpox. And he decided that he was, there was smallpox outbreak in the town and children were dying. And so he decided to initiate this inoculation program. And he, used, he inoculated his own son twice and the son of the uh, landlord of the Cordway in his arms on Tollhouse Street once in order to convince people of the safety of the process. And after that, uh, people came to his house to be inoculated. He didn't charge them, but he made the point of thanking the mothers. And I thought that was rather a nice story of somebody who was trying to do their best for the children at the time. The hospital for sick children, um, <coughs> the free hospital for sick children, in Nottingham, first opened in 1869, which was just down the hill from the General Hospital, and these are two views of it. And then in 1899, uh, the Children's Hospital was moved to Forest House off Mansfield Road, where it remained until 1978, after having had an extension uh, built and opened by Princess Mary. And then it closed and moved to the Queen's Medical Centre, and David Banks was reminding me that I hadn't mentioned the City Hospital in this, and of course Bagthorpe Infirmary opened, uh, I can't remember the date, and there was always a children's section at Bagthorpe Infirmary. And uh, it's just recently 
that here in 2008 that the children's section at Bagsworth Infirmary or City Hospital and the children's section at Queen's Medical Centre have at last been united. And it's taken a long time. But we've both been united and we're all very pleased about that. And we're going to relaunch the children's hospital in the next uh, year. With fundraising, we're going to raise our awareness. And part of my job this year is to keep you informed of that. Because, of course, the health of our children is the future health of our adults. So, we've already heard about Sir Hugh Monroe. Why is it 533? Any suggestions? Absolutely right. David is, of course, our pediatric neurologist, retired, is um, omniscient. Uh, he actually only climbed 533 of them, but he defined 538 of them. And uh, so Sir Human Rowe was a gentleman uh, who led a rather nice life. He didn't really have to work for anybody. He lived off the land. He managed his farm. Um, he travelled a lot. He worked for the Secret Service, it would seem. He certainly acted as an advocate for the, for the government. And in his spare time, he surveyed the whole of Scotland uh, from the maps that were available and defined the tops and the mountains over 3,000 feet in Scotland with a greater than 500-foot drop between one peak and the next. And if you had another peak that was less than 500-foot drop, it became a top. If you went below 500-foot, it, it became a mountain. So that's what he did. He only climbed 533 of the 538, and I thought that was quite important. This is John Attenborough. I told the story about him and his inoculation. And then these are the presidents of the Medico-Chirurgical Society who are listed in their obituaries as having worked within children's services of one sort or another, children's hospital. James Bedard, Alan, Alan's in colour because he's younger, and um, he's the other person who got me into this mess by persuading me to do this job. So these, um, I think that probably reading through the story, this man, Lewis Marshall, was probably the one, the earliest uh, president who had a serious reputation as a pediatrician. He had a big referral practice of children's medicine in uh, 1907. Um, but these are the presidents. Uh, so a lot of he was a physician, surgeon. A lot of them operated on children as well as, well as uh, uh, adults. School medical officer, obviously a children's specialist. And then Alan Watson, who's undoubtedly a children's specialist uh, for many, many reasons, because he's probably the most passionate pediatrician I know. So would anybody like to hazard a guess which mountain this is of the Monroes? David, I hope, is now going to immediately spring forward with the answer. This is Loch Nagar. Now, Loch Nagar is really rather, it's a large one, it's a series, it's a big circuit of uh, cliffs. And this is the first Monroe I ever climbed. It overlooks Balmoral Castle. I climbed it in a dense mist. I saw nothing. Came down with a group of people, and we went to the pub. Which actually much, much summarizes all the other Monroes I've ever climbed. Well, actually, not in climbing through. Uh, it is a spectacular mountain. And actually, I'd like to climb it again in clear weather, because I think the views of the cliffs. I remember just looking through the mist and seeing the cliffs in the distance, but I never saw the full distance. So I'm a children's cancer specialist, and a lot of people, if they meet me, they say, oh, God, that must be a terrible job. And, uh, of course, there are tremendous challenges in being a children's cancer specialist, but there are also tremendous interests. And uh, this is a kind of summary slide of the sort of clinical problems I deal with. And on the left side here, there's what's normal, and on the right side here, there's what's abnormal. So here is a bone marrow. This is a normal bone marrow, 
and this is one full of leukemia. And the thing you can notice here is that these cells are all different sizes and shapes, and these cells are all the same. And that's what leukemia is. It's a monoclonal expansion of a group of cells in the bone marrow that replaces the normal bone marrow and stops it working. And all of us as children's cancer specialists have expertise in managing leukemia, although we're not all hematologists. I don't look down the microscope as Ashley Jones did for his career, um, but I do look after children with leukemia. And that's different to the way it works in adults. I'm particularly interested in brain tumors, because actually brain tumors are the second commonest group of malignancies in childhood. And this is a normal-looking brain on an MR scan, made purple to make it more interesting. And this is a cerebellar astrocytoma. And we'll see two cases of cerebellar astrocytoma. This can be a very benign disease. If you get a good operation, 95% of you are cured. However, if you don't make the diagnosis, it can threaten your life because it causes obstructive hydrocephalus, which stops the fluid flowing around the brain, and uh, you can die from acute vasodilatory pressure. This is a third commonest tumor, uh, lymphoma. This is an emergency. Child, this is a normal chest X-ray, and this is a mediastinal mass, a large lump in the chest there that obstructs the, the, the superior vena cava and aorta, causes superior vena cava obstruction. Uh, airway obstruction, and children can die within hours of arrival. They often have had courses of steroids because they have symptoms that are not dissimilar to asthma, and so they've had a kind of recurrent theme, and then they can suddenly come in and trying to get a biopsy, they can collapse. Or you, you, but if you give them a course of chemotherapy, the x-ray can go from looking like that to looking like that in 24 hours. So uh, if you actually know about it, you can be very effective in treating these are bone tumors. We see a lot of these in adolescents, and this is a typical osteosarcoma. This is a very common delayed diagnosis. Uh, the story of the young man who plays rugby, hurts his knee, goes to see the GP, is a bit swollen, and uh, then uh, they don't come back and tell you that it's still swollen two weeks later, and it's even more swollen four weeks later. And then they come back six weeks later, and it's become much more painful. And so this is one of the common delays in diagnosis, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in brain tumors later. This is Wilms tumor, a kidney tumor growing out the front of the kidney on the uh, right side there, and it's got pulmonary metastases. So Wilms tumor is a very common, uh, relatively common solid tumor in children. It's one of the most curable tumors, stage 1 disease, 95% cure rates, stage 4 disease, 60% cure rates. Uh, it's the tumor which we learned the most about staging in. It's actually the basis of much of the staging used in cancer generally, and the use of staging to stratify your treatment. This is neuroblastoma, which is arising out of the adrenal gland above the kidney on the right side. And this is an MIBG scan, which is a radioisotope scan using a metabolite of adrenaline that gets taken up by the sympathetic nervous cells and those allows you to target with imaging the tumor wherever it is. And also, if you use a different radioisotope, you can target the radiotherapy to be taken up by the tumor and to treat the tumor that way. So these are a very interesting group of diseases that are diverse and are challenging and have been, and have been converted from being killers to actually being cured overall in 75% of children with cancer. 75% of them are now cured. Some of them, it's nearly 100% cure, you don't die at diagnosis. 90% cure lymphoma. Some it's only 30 or 40% cure. Um, Wilms tumor, 60%. Osteosarcoma, 50%. Actually, there hasn't been much improvement in cure rates for osteosarcoma in the last 20 years, although the surgery for this disease is much better because they have to amputate, but now we can remove the bones and put new bones in so they keep the leg, but they get an artificial bone, so that keeps their feet. 
uh, often. Uh, or, or, so that's an improvement from the surgical point of view. Now, going into this specialty, and I got into it by chance rather than by design because I got involved in hematoncology oncology as an adult specialist and then I went into pediatrics. And then I started treating children with leukemia in pediatrics and found that I was really interested in the disease. And I was advised, uh, I was working then in Leicester with Rosemary Shannon, and I was advised to go to Sheffield Children's Hospital where I worked with this man, John Lilliman. And John Lilliman became uh, president of the Royal College of Pathologists, and he was a brilliant uh, hematologist. He was very young when I went to work in Sheffield, and he was very enthusiastic, great sense of humor, and we had a great department. We learned a lot. Kate Foreman, who's here, she and I worked together at Sheffield Children's Hospital at that time. I also felt it was like working to prep school. The consultants were the prefects and I was a registrar, so I was kind of school, I was kind of form captain that had that sort of atmosphere. We used to hold the Christmas shows, which where we'd lampoon each other ruthlessly, which was tremendous. He then, sorry, he then advised that I go to um, work at Great Ormond Street and uh, sent me to meet John Pritchard, and John Pritchard uh, is, uh, was, died sadly last year from a brain tumor. Uh, um, but he was a fantastic physician. He was uh, intellectually acute. Uh, he never, ever accepted anything that anybody said without challenging it. could be a bit exhausting, um, but uh, you did learn an awful lot, and he challenged a lot of the myths that were in existence, and he was a re relentless publisher. He wrote an enormous amount and challenged us all to do things that you never thought you were capable of. He, um, when I was working at Great Ormond Street, I had a friend who went back to Australia, and uh, he said, why don't I go and work at Melbourne Children's Hospital? So, I went to work at Melbourne Children's Hospital. You did that sort of thing as a bachelor, just thought that's a good idea. Wrote a couple of letters, and then he went. And I met Keith Waters, and he was really the person who introduced me to management of brain tumors because John worked at Great Ormond Street but didn't look after any brain tumors um, because the neurosurgeons never spoke to him. So um, I went to Australia to learn how to speak to neurosurgeons. Uh, Keith was a, is a very... Uh, a uh, good communicator, man of few words, but every word wa uh, really matters. And he's a great person for harnessing the young people and getting families to work together. And that's what I really learned from him. And when I came back from Australia, I met this young, this man, uh, Eric Buffet. And I think probably in neuroncology in my field, Eric is probably the most inspirational person I know. Um, he's the professor of neuroncology at uh, Toronto Sick Children's Hospital. But at that, I met him when he had come from Lyon. He's French to work at Bristol and then work in London, and he joined our trials group, and he was very uh, formative. And he was a bit like John, actually. He challenged absolutely everything, and I quite like people like that because it makes you think. And then uh, I joined up with these people, Jonathan Punt, who many of you know, who's a neurosurgeon here in Nottingham, and he was one of the main reasons I came to work here. And Giorgio Perilongo, who's coming to talk to us, both of these people are talking to us in the lecture series. He's the professor of pediatrics at the University of Padua. And Roger Taylor is a clinical oncologist, radiation oncologist, and is now the professor of clinical oncology at Swansea. And uh, together we wrote our book on children's brain tumors, which is the first book in Europe on the subject, uh, which was a great thing because uh, we held all the meeting in Jonathan's house. He has three large Labradors, and if you're ever stuck about the editing, you'd all scratch the Labrador's head, drink a glass of wine, and the problem would be solved one way or another. So I've been here in 1990, and David Hull and Peter Fenton, the dean, said normally you have to be in an institution for three years before anybody knows that you're here, and he was absolutely right. I sat in that room on my own for three years, and no, David occasionally came and spoke to me, and other people spoke, but not much. It was pretty quiet. And in 1994, this story came. Dying British children exploited by U.S. cancer doctors. 
Um, this was a story about uh, really an American neurosurgeon who uh, worked in a New York hospital and had been asked by the hospital, because he was very, very busy, to set up his own financial institution and run his surgery as an ind independent institution. And he then traveled around the world saying, your children would be better off being treated by me than by your local services. And he did this in Israel and lots of other countries. And he did it in the UK, in the News of the World, and the Sunday Times, and all sorts of things. And people got very agitated. And the Department of Health uh, consulted David Hull, who consulted me. And they asked me if I'd like to write a document. And I'm sorry, it's a bit blurry. But this is a guidance document for children, children and young people with brain and spinal tumors. And I did that in conjunction with Tony Hockley, who was a very, very uh, capable and very nice uh, pediatric neurosurgeon at Birmingham Children's Hospital, who sadly died earlier on this year. And so we wrote this guidance document for the country, and we linked all the children's cancer centers with their preferred brain surgery service. And that immediately stopped uh, adult services seeing the odd child and creating this inexpertise in uh, brain surgery and supportive care. And it was very successful, and it took our referral rates in children's cancer units from 50% to 80% in, in three years, just by doing this one document. So that convinced me that sometimes doing things with, uh, within the health service management was worthwhile. In 1997, uh, two things happened. Uh, first of all, in actually in 1996, the dean of the medical school came to see me and said, uh, that was uh, Malcolm Simons. He said, David, uh, they're going to raise £30 million from the community to help the University of Nottingham develop, and they'd like a, um, a PR story uh, to front up their campaign, and we wonder whether children's cancer might be a good subject. If you have any ideas, put it down on a sheet of paper and have it on my desk by tomorrow morning. And uh, you need to put some money you need and what you'd use it for. So I rang my friend Jim Lowe, who always is a very good advisor, and he said, well, what sort of thing you need to ask for is um, pump prime funding, um, costs for meetings, research fellowships, and after about a one and a half million. So I wrote that down, I stuck it on the desk of the dean that morning, and I thought no more about it. And he came back nine months later and said, the vice chancellor, well, that's got a good idea, we're going to raise 1.5 million for you. And I said, thank you very much. What are we going to spend it on? He said, that's your problem. So we then went on to think about that. And at the same time, uh, this family, uh, the Dickinson family, uh, Neil and Angela Dickinson, their daughter died from a brain tumor in 1997. And they were, uh, Neil um, was an international businessman. He ran an international airline. And uh, he was shocked that there was so little known about brain tumors. So little research was going on and nobody was doing anything about it. So he set up his charity, the Samantha Dickinson Brain Tumor Trust, and uh, started thinking about how he could make this happen. He raised, he played a lot of cricket in Sussex and he got his friends in the cricketing community to give money, and he was very successful at it, because he was a very successful businessman. And at the same time, a group of families uh, called, uh, were also worried about the lack of research, Brain Tumor UK, and that was started in 1997. So 1997 was an important year. In 2001, um, this family, and this is Sue Farrington-Smith, her niece, Ali Phelan, died at the age of nine from a brain tumor, and they were shocked that there was no research going on in brain tumor. And they set up their funding uh, fundraising charity. Sue Farrington-Smith, interestingly, is a political lobbyist. She thought, well, we can raise some money, but actually I know how to get Parliament interested. So she started using her skills in political lobbying. And she started to harness this thing, what I use this picture, to summarize parent power. 
the greatest asset that children have is two parents. And uh, if they're ill, then their two parents are their greatest assets. And this is a very powerful uh, uh, force. This boy, Thomas Archer, um, was diagnosed with a brain tumor after having seen 13 doctors in the United Kingdom and went to France on holiday and he saw one French doctor and he said, your child's got a brain tumor. And then they came back and the parents were deeply shocked. The father was a, a, a photographer for a big business and so he spent all the time photographing the leaders of business. That was his, he was a portrait photographer and so he met a lot of people. Digby Jones was one of the people he was photographing and he told the story. And they got involved with this group and then they started a lobbying campaign that we part and so we all wrote to members of parliament about brain tumors and the lack of research and they held an adjournment debate in the houses of parliament at which 350 members of parliament came along at six o'clock in the evening which is almost remarkable in itself and they started on um, this is uh, always dangerous when you have these sorts of things I met that family at uh, the Samantha Dixon Brain Tumor Trust uh, two months ago, and uh, Jake had died about a year ago. Um, he hadn't had, they hadn't had the full feedback from the post-mortem at that stage. The mother had spent the intervening year worrying that she'd allowed him to go to the nursery and do forward rolls, and that was why he'd bled into his tumor. And I explained to them that actually these tumors spontaneously bleed and probably the forward roll had nothing to do with it. So this is what happens with these tumors. Low-grade astrocytomas in childhood, if you have a successful operation, are the ones that have a 95% cure rate. And so this boy died before he was diagnosed and because nobody spotted the sign. Now that picture of him running around in circles with his head on one side, what's that sign? Well, that's head tilt. David, would you say that that was a classical case of head tilt? And uh, something we worry about as a pediatrician, if you see a boy walking around with a head on one side, you, have to, you normally look for an explanation fairly urgently. It isn't always a brain tumor, or it isn't always, but it's something that needs to be explained. It may be a problem of double vision, because they put the head on one side to unify the line. So this is not something you often see in adults. Not, a, not the way a head brain tumor is presented in adulthood. Now, what did you do there to make that thing forward? That there. I want to move on. That's right. That should start now. So uh, she's 15 or 16, and um, she had this very long history, and her field of view had gone from this to this, and she'll never be able to drive for the rest of her life. She's got a low-grade astrocytoma, and probably has got a 90% chance of not being affected by that tumor again in terms of the currents. And um, 
these stories, uh, the reason that Jonathan Punt and I got involved in this is because we were asked to advise the law courts as to what the causation was and what the likely consequences of these delays. And so we became quite interested in seeing what we could do to change this, and you've had a chance to think about it. And we asked ourselves, well, what can we do as academics to try and solve this? And academics do academic things. And we thought, well, shall we look at the literature uh, containing symptomatology of brain tumours and see if we could harness awareness in primary second care to shorten the lag time for diagnosis and contribute to reduced burden of morbidity due to the effects of the tumour its treatment. And that was our hypothesis. That was our, um, our question. And so we did a summary of the literature, and uh, this was published in Lancet Oncology. Now, how many of you are in primary care or have been in primary care? And how many of you in secondary care that involved in diagnosing problems? Have any of you read this paper? No. Why should you? But an academic, you know, we're told this is a good thing to do. We write the paper, we present the evidence. But actually, on the whole, no one ever reads it. We were actually doing the job. So, we, from this paper, we looked at um, the symptoms of over 3,000 cases in the published literature of brain tumour. And we found that these are the ranked frequency of symptoms for all children, headache, nausea, vomiting, gait, papilledema, seizures, symptoms, etc. And these are the ones for under four-year-olds. Big head, nausea and vomit, irritability, lethargy, abnormal gait, weight loss. So they're really quite different in their frequency and their and their presentation, because younger children have flexible heads and they don't get the same symptoms and their brains in different proportions. And also the tumours occur in sometimes different parts of the brain. And you see that head tilt is down here. And then if they have the commonest genetic condition in humans, neurofibromatosis, they get different symptoms, problems with vision, bulging eyes, optic atrophy, uh, squint, headache, and symptoms raised in cranial pressure and precocious puberty. So we thought, well, that gets us so far. We were able to correlate the symptoms with tumours in different parts of the brain. So here's the purple bit of brain, the supratendoral region, there's a list of symptoms there, the brainstem list of symptoms there. And this is a very good teaching aid, um, and it tells us a bit about the symptoms and where different parts of the brain get tumours. In childhood, most brain tumours occur either in the cerebellum or the brainstem, so the back of the head. Whereas in other most brain tumours occur up here in the cortical region, so they get different symptoms, hence the difference in the presentation. We did a cohort study where we collected data from four different hospitals, uh, Birmingham Children's Hospital, Queen's Medical Centre, Sheffield Children's Hospital and Southampton General Hospital, of 139 children diagnosed with brain tumour, um, and we looked at the pattern of referrals in the UK at that time, therefore, in these four different places. And we analyzed how long it took to make the diagnosis. And this is a graph showing as a survivor, uh, um, an analysis of the, of the length of time, the symptom intervals, so that's from symptom onset to diagnosis for this 144 patients over two years. And you can see that half of them are diagnosed around three months, and the rest of them take longer. And then we compared the UK results, and this is our study here. This is the length of time takes the diagnosis in our study compared to a previous UK study, which is out here. And then you compare us to other countries in the world. The only other British study is in Scotland by Vasco Sahar, which is a very small study. So we're one of the slowest countries in the world to make the diagnosis. 
Does anybody have any suggestions as to why that might be? Any suggestions? Yes. Michael, sorry, Michael, Michael, Michael yes, sorry. Okay, so that's a very that's important view, and I understand what you say. Uh, interestingly, all, a lot, most of these other countries have general pediatricians as the primary point of contact for children. We have a primary care contact, but most other countries, first and second world countries, have pediatricians as the first point of care. So that people who are looking at the children are thinking children's algorithms and priorities all the time rather than trying to mix and match. And I think that may be a contributory factor. But the point that you make, Michael, about the ad addition of delays is absolutely right. When we came to look at the change in symptomatology, from the, uh, the change in symptoms from the onset to the time of diagnosis, the biggest change was in the visual system. 53% of the patients got significant deterioration in their visual system from the moment of symptom onset to the moment of diagnosis. 45% uh, of deterioration in their motor function, 37% got deterioration in cranial nerve palsies, uh, and also behavior change. Nausea and vomiting headache wasn't such a big change. That tends to be fairly static. So with that sort of information, we said, well, how can we change practice. And one of the ways we thought we might do it is, well, let's get a bunch of people together who had experience of, brain, of diagnosing a brain tumor in a child and get them to think about this problem, present them some information, and see if they can come up with some better guidelines. And we use the Delphi consensus methodology. And uh, Delphi, uh, so this is where you make, prepare statements based upon the evidence you have available to you and you ask people to vote on them and they either agree with them or they disagree with them, and you keep sending them around and modifying them until you get 75% agreement in the statements, and you then say, that's the statement that's acceptable to people. And we did that with a bunch of doctors from different branches of medicine, pediatricians, general practitioners, oncologists, neurosurgeons, radiologists, or neurologists, and ophthalmologists. And uh, we ended up with a bunch of statements that went through round, round three rounds, got quite good compliance. This is quite 79%, 83% is very good response rate, so very committed and motivated people. And we ended up with a guideline like this. Now, those of you in primary care, if I sent this to you, would you read it? No, because it's very complicated. Because the nature of the brain is it has very complicated symptoms. And so we thought, well, it's a beautiful guideline, and actually the College of Pediatrics thought it was wonderful, and they published it and it's on their website. You can all get it if you wish. 
But our problem is, how do we actually get it into the hands of the right people at the right moment? Because brain tumour affects 1 in 2,500 children in the 16 years. So actually, the average general practitioner will never see a brain tumour in childhood. You might have to have two or three pra uh, professional lifetimes to see one. And so we've been running a project called the Pathways Project. Now, we've got a plan, and we're hoping that we're going to be funded to do this plan, to try and take this further forward. And I'd like your feedback on this. We are going to um, create specific advice based upon this data that gives people advice about what you do for pre what the cardinal symptoms are for preschool children by saying, this, these will be public messages and go to the, uh, the profession as well, that brain tumors do happen, that symptoms include persistent vomiting, poor balance and walking problems, funny eye movements, lethargy or irritability, fits or seizures, wry neck or head tilt. Remember that video. If your child has one of these for two weeks or longer, see your doctor. If two or more, ask for a two-week referral. Is this my turn? The second one is for school-aged children, the similar brain tumor symptoms, headaches and vomiting, poor balance and walking problems, eyes or vision problems, fits or seizures, lethargy or irritability, wry neck or head tilt. So if you have one of these, see your doctor, two of them ask for a brain scan. And the third one is for adolescents, because they have slightly different symptoms, headaches and vomiting, blurred or double vision, poor balance or coordination, fits or seizures, have one of these two weeks or longer see a doctor, especially if your growth or puberty is slow. Because it's very common in adolescence that the tumors are in the endocrine controlling components of the brain. And so disturbed puberty is quite common. And also adolescents come to their doctors on their own, not all with their parents. So our suggestion is that we distribute these messages through health outlets, through uh, NHS Direct or whatever, and we ask people to come to see their doctor about it. And we ask them to present the thing to their doctor. And we also create a website which they can visit, which is a decision support website, so that the doctor may not know the symptoms, may not have been taught them by reading the books or whatever, but there'll be something, a website there to support that decision. Because this is infrequent. It's not something we can train everybody to a level where you expect them to be. So that's our plan. We've got a bid in with the Health Foundation, and we're waiting to hear whether they'll give us the money to run the project. But Samantha Dixon Brain Tumor Trust are keen to do this. So that's symptomatology. And because of the delay, I'm going to move on towards the end. That's the view. Anybody like to say where those are, those mountains? I think they're the memoirs off the top of Ben Nevis. This is a pediatrician, Mike Smith, standing down there. And 35 is the number of Monroes I climbed that year, golden year. I'm not going to talk about this because we haven't got time. So, I've talked to you a little bit about what happened since I came to Nottingham, that the 
about my time working with, uh, uh, with many of my colleagues. And this group of people, and I, I'm missing one surgeon, is the multidisciplinary team with whom I work in pediatric oncology. And it's a very, these are just the medical members of the pediatric oncology, or mainly the medi, med, 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 medical members of the pediatric oncology team. And these are the non-medical members, many of these are nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, psychologists, uh, data managers, doctors and nurses in training. So to look after children with cancer requires people with a very wide variety of skills and requires enormous cooperation to act on behalf of the child at all times. And the use of the uh, cutting-edge understanding of technology in diagnostics, in surgery, and the use of medicines, and the use of scientific trials, and the evaluation of outcomes. The person in this room with whom I work the longest is this man here, who has a very, very attractive halo in this picture. Um, Martin is a great colleague, and um, uh, he has saint-like qualities to put up with me for uh, the last uh, 17 years. Uh, Kate Foreman's put up with me on off for even longer, and uh, Richard Grundy down here was put up with me for quite a long time at Great Ormond Street and came to join us here in Nottingham, really much against his better advice, I suspect. But he seems to have remained remarkably cheerful. Uh, we have a very good team, and we enjoy working with each other, which, of course, is a very good start to being a doctor in any branch of medicine. This is my family, so that's Jill in the blue, uh, Emma, who's at University in Loughborough, and Kate, who's at school still, and the dog, Oscar, and these are all Klein and Two Monroes. Uh, this was one of my 50th birthday, uh, it was um, Emma Moore, and they climbed the second one, Bidian Nambian, with about 25 other people uh, a couple of days later, and so they're very lucky, they started off with two Monroes, uh, only 200 84 to go. Um, finally, I just want to draw your attention that this year the lecture program is being combined with the Pickering Association. And uh, this is the Alumni Association of the University of Nottingham and was founded by Malcolm Simons uh, getting me in a room and so I think we all have an Alumni Association. I didn't get out fast enough and I ended up with the job and I'm hopefully going to transfer the chairmanship to Doug Black quite soon. I've got the meeting lined up, and he's not said no yet, and uh, Rob Henderson at the back there is uh, very keen to find a treasurer, so if there's any Nottingham graduate who wants to take over the treasurer's role, Rob would love to speak to you. This is Sir George Pickering, uh, who uh, the society is named after, association named after, and he was really the leading light for getting the medical school going. The foundation dean, David Dick Greenfield, was uh, uh, one of Sir George's uh, trainees, and uh, Tony Mitchell, uh, was another one, and I remember meeting Sir George uh, when he came back to, at the age of 80, to see how well the medical school was getting on. I was in my third year, I was a student staff representative, and he was a pretty relentless chap, I and mean, he never really did anything that anybody wanted him to do. He was always darting off down corridors, asking people questions, and generally avoiding all the planned visit. And his wife was with him, he had a stick, she was making sure he wasn't going too far, but he was a very energetic man and enjoyed a good argument, and... Uh, you can read his book about his views on hypertension, uh, which he had. So, I've uh, had a very interesting career so far, and, I've, uh, and so far is so good, I hope. And uh, I know how many Monroes I've climbed, but I'm not sure whether Rob is going to confess to how many he's climbed. But I can tell you we've climbed over 100 between us together. 
And that's a lot of walking. And probably a lot of pints of beer in the pub afterwards, which is just as important as the walking. And this is my timeline of Monroe's, and some of the numbers are solved. There are 283, sorry, 283 Monroe's, and I've climbed 157, which means 126 to go. And this was the golden year, 1985, when I did 35, but I've been relentlessly persistent since, and keeping going every year, except when the, a mad, the mad cow disease stopped us, and we had to go to, um, to, put to uh, northern Spain and climb the Picos de Europa instead, where we got stuck in snowdrifts, and um, that's another story. These are all the Monroes across Scotland. The red ones are the ones I've climbed, and the green ones are the ones that are still to be done. And as far as I'm concerned, there are the 538 tops and 283 Monroes. As far as I'm concerned, it's not completing them that matters. It's just great fun going and exploring another bit of the country with a purpose. And uh, we head off on the plane and hire a car, and we don't know where we're going until we get to the gate of the airport. Do we go left or do we go right? And then you, the whole journey starts. And um, it normally involves buying a bottle of whiskey somewhere along the line. Uh, and the key thing is not to buy it before you get on the plane, because I've had to give it to the people before now. And it, there's nothing more painful than giving away a bottle of whiskey because you've got too much fluid in your bag. And so I set off on this journey of mountaineering and life by a teacher. And uh, I've noticed in dealing with young people that the experience you give them, opportunity to do things, can change their lives. And this has changed my life, this teacher who took me up mountains and encouraged me to do this, and I'm still in touch with him now. And I'm chosen for that reason. Uh, the Ellen MacArthur Trust is one of my, um, one of my charities for this year. Because a lot of the young people I look after go sailing with Ellen MacArthur as part of their rehabilitation program. And they come back different people. They've had a terrible experience with illness. Their parents have been very worried about them. They've tried to stop them or to control everything they do. And Ellen's group, um, who are all expert sailors, create a safe, thrilling environment on a boat for them to experience new, have new experiences, which changes their view of the world. And uh, they live together in the community for a week. They'll have to cook and eat together. They learn to work with each other. They've all had the same enormous experience, and they come back different people. And I think this is a very, very good uh, charity. And Ellen's coming to speak to us in April next year. And uh, she's going to tell us about high sea racing, although she's just declared this last weekend on Desert Island Discs that she isn't going to go around the world again. I suppose if you grab the world record by one and a half days from that Frenchman, and then he grabbed it back by 14 days, you'd be rather disinclined to go back and try and get uh, better of him. And especially as 14 and 15 year olds are now planning to sail around the world, you're really, what's the point in competing? She's an, she doesn't need to prove anything. She's an exceptional individual. She's inspirational in so many ways. And I'm sure she'll go on and, and give us a very interesting time. So I hope that um, I've managed to convey the idea of so far, so good. Um, I'm always struck by the glasses in this person. Uh, people with glass, very thick glasses don't often jump over big chasms, and this man's doing it. And uh, sometimes looking after children with cancer, that's what we have to ask people to do, and they often do. So thank you very much.